0: We open in the Word of God this morning to Paul's letter to the Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3, and we'll read the first 14 verses of the chapter. Philippians 3, the first 14 verses, and they center on this theme in verse 9, "...be found in him, not having mine own righteousness, which is of the law." But that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith. Philippians chapter 3, verse 1 Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you, to me indeed, is not grievous, but for you it is safe. Beware of dogs, beware of evil workers, beware of the concision. We are the circumcision which worship God in the Spirit, and rejoice in Christ Jesus, and have no confidence in the flesh. Though I might also have confidence in the flesh, if any other man thinketh that he hath whereof he might trust in the flesh, I more circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, and Hebrew of the Hebrews, as touching the law, a Pharisee, concerning zeal, Persecuting the church, touching the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. But what things were gained to me, those I counted loss for Christ, yea, doubtless. And I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and do count them but dung in Christ Jesus. I'll read that far in Philippians chapter 3. I want to turn just to a couple of the passages. The first one is in the book of Numbers. Numbers chapter 23. Numbers chapter 23. This is the account of Balaam and Balak and Balak the king's request that Balaam come and curse Israel. And you know that Balaam makes these multiple attempts. And each time, just as the dumb donkey spoke the word of God, so Balaam, the unregenerate prophet, spoke the word of God. So Numbers chapter 23, verse 19 through 21, this is what God says through Balaam twenty three nineteen God is not a man that he should lie, neither the son of man that he should repent. Hath he said, and shall he not do it, or hath he spoken, and shall he not make it good? Behold, I have received commandment to bless, and he hath blessed, and I cannot reverse it. He hath not beheld iniquity in Jacob, neither hath he seen perverseness in Israel. The Lord his God is with him, and the shout of a king is among them. And then I want us this morning, as we think about the truth of justification, which we'll be looking at in the Heidelberg Catechism, to think of it in terms of this parable in Matthew chapter 13. Well, these two parables, verses 44 through 46. Matthew 13. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like unto treasure hid in a field, the which when a man hath found, he hideth, and for joy thereof goeth and selleth all that he hath, and buyeth that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like unto a merchant man seeking, a goodly, seeking goodly pearls, who when he hath found one pearl of great price, went and sold all that he had, and Bought it. This morning we look at the Heidelberg Catechism, Lord's Day 23, page 13 in the back of the Psalter. Heidelberg Catechism, Lord's Day 23, page 13, 59 through 61 in the Catechism. What doth it profit thee now that thou believest all this? that I am righteous in Christ before God, and an heir of eternal life. How art thou righteous before God? Only by a true faith in Jesus Christ. So that, though my conscience accuse me that I have grossly transgressed all the commandments of God, and kept none of them, and am still inclined to all evil, notwithstanding God, without any merit of mine, but only of mere grace, grants and imputes to me the perfect satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness of Christ, even so, as if I never had had nor committed any sin, yea, as if I had fully accomplished all that obedience which Christ has accomplished for me, inasmuch as I embrace such benefit with a believing heart. Why sayest thou that thou art righteous by faith only? Not that I am acceptable to God on account of the worthiness of my faith, but because only the satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness of Christ is my righteousness before God, and that I cannot receive and apply the same to myself any other way than by faith only. Even though this Lord's Day doesn't mention the word justified or justification, that is what this is all about. The righteousness of Jesus Christ applied to me. So what is the importance of these theological terms? Righteous, justified. Are they just something like dusty books on the top shelf of a theological library in our mind that we pull off this morning and examine for a little while and see if we can understand what they are intellectually or even biblically. Or, because these are biblical terms that describe what Christ has done for us, for you, for me, are these rich, important, significant, so that you, saved, declare, I am justified with great joy? What does it profit you that you believe? All this. That's the first question here. It's a reflective question. It goes back to Lord's Day 7, where the Apostles' Creed is given and the content of our faith is given as the articles of the Christian faith in the Apostles' Creed. And then from Lord's Day 7 to this point in the Catechism, we've been examining each of those. And now the question is you believe all that? What does it matter? What does it profit to you? What is the benefit of your faith? And and the and a part of the question is not just this to ask what is the benefit, but is it worth it? Have you counted the cost of believing in Jesus Christ? There is a cost, and Jesus himself talks about that. Take up your cross, follow me. If they have hated me, they will hate you. Is it worth it to believe? That's the question for us this morning. And what we come to is the pearl of great price, which is at the center of the gospel, that I am righteous before God in Jesus Christ. That's the parables that we read, but certainly that's what Paul is talking about in Philippians chapter 3 when he says, I count all things but dung for the excellency of the knowledge of Jesus Christ that I might be found in him not having mine own righteousness. And he's talking there about all the things, the religious achievements that he had accomplished, laying them all aside so that he says, I might be found in Christ Jesus and that the righteousness which is of God may be mine by faith. He had counted the cost, and he realized, here's the great thing, the great thing that I live for, for which I believe in Jesus Christ, that I'm righteous before him. So we're going to consider this morning justification, the pearl of great Notice, first of all, what it is, second, how it becomes ours, and then third, the great comfort that it affords to the sinner. This morning, we have to put ourselves in a courtroom, not as observers of what's going on in the courtroom, but in the box of the accused. That's you, and that's me to understand the great truth of justification and its rich significance and value for us to understand why we believe that's where we have to see ourselves first this morning in the box of the accused in the courtroom before God the judge God is judge God is a righteous judge we stand before him we stand before him every day And this morning, that's where we stand. And there are prosecutors, and there is evidence. The prosecutor is Satan, who's called in the Bible the accuser of the brethren. And along with him is our own conscience. Satan tells us that we don't belong in heaven, that we cannot be and do not deserve to be heirs of eternal life, which is the result of justification. Satan accuses our conscience and is the accuser of the brethren before God. And then, along with that, our conscience agrees. As it's put in the catechism here, I have grossly transgressed all the commandments of God and kept none of them. And, not only that, I'm still inclined to all evil, so that I actually hate by nature the judge before me who is God and everyone else. This is where we are this morning. And then the evidence is there as well our sins. We sang, our sins rise up against us prevailing day by day and all of this is known before God the judge who tries the thoughts and the hearts and the intents and the words of man. we stand before him guilty, as it were, with the the blood of our crimes dripping from our fingers, accused and obviously guilty before the judge. And in the courtroom, all the eyes are fixed on the judge. What is he going to say about me as I stand there before him guilty? He's seen the evidence. He's heard the accusations. What will he say? That's the truth of justification. That's foundational to the truth of justification. It's a legal truth. It says something about our legal standing before God. And it says something about how we stand in ourselves before God as well. And the truth of justification is this, that God the judge says about me, the wretched sinner, guilty before him in myself, accused, evil, He says what he said in Numbers chapter 23. I have not beheld iniquity. I don't see guilt. I don't see sin. I don't hear the accusations of Satan. In fact, you can put those accusations out of your mind. Look at how it's described in the catechism. Though I have grossly transgressed all the commandments of God, and am still inclined to all evil, God, without any merit of mine, merely of grace, grants and imputes to me the perfect satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness of Christ. And then this, even as if I never had had nor committed any sin, yet as if I had fully accomplished all that obedience, Which Christ has accomplished for me. We understand our sin. We understand our sinfulness. But the truth of justification is this that God doesn't see it as ours, He sees us as perfectly righteous. And so He says, Innocent. Innocent before me. That's justification. It's amazing, isn't it? It's amazing, first of all, when we consider the God who declares that we are righteous. He is a God of justice. He is a God of righteousness. He's a God who, in his justice, is perfect. This is something that we read in Numbers chapter 23 as well, immediately before that declaration in verse 21. I have not beheld iniquity in Jacob, neither seen perverseness in Israel. This is what God says. God is not a man that he should lie, neither the son of man that he should repent. Hath he said, and shall he not do it? Hasn't God said, concerning sin, the wages of sin is death? Hasn't God said in his law, this is what's right, and I will maintain my justice? God is right. God is just. And yet we stand before him and he says to us sinners, you're innocent. We sang this earlier in Psalm 76, Psalter 207, When from heaven thy sentence sounded, all the earth in fear was still. And again, When thy anger once is risen, who can stand in that dread day? You see, in this courtroom, the judge, God, maintains his justice. And yet, We are declared innocent. This is second, amazing, considering who we are, because as I said, we stand before him with the guilt of our sin like blood dripping from our hands. It's quite obvious that we are guilty. The accusations are there. The evidence is there. And this is true of every one of us. There is none righteous. No, not one. And you just go and look at, Romans chapter 3, and you see the description of the depravity of man. And then this question, are we any better than they? And the answer is no, in no wise. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And so we can look at ourselves, and we should look at ourselves, as we stand before this judge, heads hung in humility. My sin, my actual sins my thoughts, and my words, as well as my actions. My neglect to obey. My transgressions in which I go against the commandments of God. My sinful nature in which I'm conceived and born, and which still makes me inclined to every sort of evil. My sins. My original sin before I had had or committed any sin, I stand guilty in Adam. All of sinned and fallen short. So much so that I feel the weight and make the confession with Paul, chief of sinners. And so we stand before God, the judge, and God says to this one, I don't see anything. You're innocent. I have not beheld iniquity in Jacob or seen perverseness in Israel. Think of that in Numbers chapter 23. This is not the first attempt of Balaam to curse Israel. Balak wants him to curse Israel. And he first takes him to see the whole nation, and words of blessing come out. Then he takes him to the edge of the camp just to see where the mixed multitude is. And these are a people that have brought the, the evils of Egypt with them. But God has included this mixed multitude with his people, and Balak thinks, well, Balaam will curse these. And then listen. Listen. In Numbers chapter 23, Behold, I have received commandment to bless, and he hath blessed, and I cannot reverse it. So that God, through the eyes of Balaam looking on Israel, a sinful people, ah, sinful people, says, I don't see it. I don't see their iniquity. Romans chapter 4, verse 5, the Apostle Paul puts it this way, that God is just and the justifier of the ungodly. He's the justifier of the ungodly. And what's even more wonderful is this, that the righteousness that God sees in us when he declares us righteous is his own righteousness. That is, we who are opposed to him in our unrighteousness become the recipients of his own righteousness. It has to be that way because God himself is the only one who is righteous. And to be right with God, we must have his righteousness because all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So we must stand before him, not in our own righteousness, but in his own. And God gives that to us. That's the breakthrough of Luther's thinking at the time of the Reformation. Rome's teaching was, and still is today, that a man's righteousness before God is his conformity by his conduct to the law, to the expectations that are placed upon him. And so in the Catholic system, there is this sacrament of penance. And you would go and confess your sins to the priest and then he would give you a list of things that you should do to make penance for your sin to to pay for them in some measure. And so Luther was very busy with this, wearing coats filled with bugs, whipping himself, sleeping in the cold, all the different things that were told that, they, that he was told to do as a monk and Luther understood the righteousness, the perfect righteousness of God, and he despaired before this just and righteous God in his own sins and his own unrighteousness as he stood before God with, as it were, the blood dripping from his hands. He knew that he could not atone for his own sins. And this was the breakthrough, I said, in his thinking, that he understood the righteousness of God in Romans chapter 3, verses 21 and 22, to be the righteousness which is of God or from God, which is Philippians chapter 3 and verse 9. Luther understood that the righteousness in which he stood before God could never be his own, could never be something that man would achieve or man could accomplish by his doing that his righteousness came from God. It could be nothing else. And only that way could he be accepted before God. This is what is known as Luther's tower experience. That as he studied the scriptures, this became very clear before his mind. Romans chapter 3. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, there shall no flesh be justified in his sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin but now the righteousness of god without the law is manifested being witnessed by the law and the prophets this is the righteousness which is from god without the law that is apart from man's obedience and contribution by his obedience to the law the righteousness of god comes to us not by the law, but as the catechism says here, merely of grace. And God says, I see you as reflections of myself, my own righteousness. And that, of course, raises the question, how can that be? And here are two great statements of the Reformation. This is the second point of the sermon. Really, these two great statements of the Reformation. Solo Christo, Christ alone. Sola Fide, faith alone. This is how the righteousness of Jesus Christ, the righteousness of God himself, becomes ours. And this is what the Apostles' Creed has been teaching us. Think of the different things that we've learned as we've gone through the Apostles' Creed, especially the great central section which has to do with Jesus Christ. I believe in God's Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, and so on. We're talking about how the righteousness of God comes to us. And it comes through Jesus Christ. Christ is God, conceived and born of the Virgin Mary. So he possesses all the righteousness of God as he comes into our human nature. He is our representative. He's born of the seed of the woman and of the seed of David. And into this human race in complete humanity. And he takes our place before God. God looks on him. He comes and he obeys the law of God perfectly without ever wavering from God's requirements. And that is his perfect righteousness and holiness that's referenced in the catechism. And the idea there of holiness is not sanctification, but his perfect obedience. And now God looks at him. And he says, you're righteous in him. His righteousness is yours. And we, of course, standing in this courtroom, ask, how can that be? Is this fair that the judge would look at one who's obviously guilty and then look at another who's not guilty and say to the one who is guilty, well, he's not guilty, so I'll let you go free. How can that be? And the answer is this, that Christ takes our guilt and our sin on himself. He does that especially in his suffering and his death on the cross. He is our righteousness before God. This is again part of what Balaam declares in in beautiful words of prophecy in Numbers chapter 23. It might be something that we Don't catch right away. But listen to these words. He hath not beheld iniquity in Jacob. Neither hath he seen perverseness in Israel. God views his people as without iniquity, without guilt. And then this. Jehovah, his God is with him, and the shout of a king is among them. This is long before Israel had a king, isn't it? And it's a prophecy. A king will come. And the king will shout, the king will be among them as the voice of God. And this king will not just be any king, but this king will be Jehovah his God who is with him, the king who is Jehovah, Jesus. And now when Balaam looks at Israel and listens and speaks by the power of Of prophecy. What does he see in Israel? Not only that there are no sins before God's eye, but that God hears the cry of the king among them victory over the enemy of sin. It is finished. He cried from the cross. And so, justification takes us to the cross, doesn't it? There is no righteousness apart from not just Jesus Christ, but there's no righteousness apart from Jesus Christ suffering on Calvary. I want you to see one important word in the catechism, and it's the word imputed, and that's explained as freely given. He, of mere grace, grants and imputes to me the perfect satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness of Christ. Gives and imputes. Imputing something to another is to give it to them from the outside. And here is a very important thing for us to understand about righteousness. There are the righteousness of Jesus Christ. There are here two ways, we could say, in which you receive something. One is to have it infused, and the other is to have it imputed. Infused is to take it, as it were, into your system. So an IV is put into your arm, and a blood transfusion is infused into your veins, and it gives you health from the inside out. Imputation is to put something over you. And that's the idea. The righteousness of Jesus Christ is put over us. It is the covering for our sin. This is a very important distinction for us to understand in connection with the way that the Roman Catholic Church and others understand justification. Justification is not infused it's not a power that's put into us that then displays itself in the way that we live. No, our sins are always, def- our, our, our good works are always defiled with sin, and our righteousness can never be dependent on our doing. Our righteousness is, sometimes it's put this way, an alien righteousness. And so there is, in justification, this double imputation, which is a legal transaction. In Isaiah 53, it's put this way, that the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. God puts our sins on Jesus Christ. And now, in this double transaction, he imputes to us, that is, he puts on us the righteousness of Christ. He sees us in him. And he sees us in him two ways. He sees us in him as those who have perfectly obeyed. And he sees us in him as those who have fully satisfied. Jesus Christ has done that. And that's what God sees on us. And that declaration makes us legally free from the condemnation of the law. That's justification. It's the declaration that this one is innocent, free, from the condemnation of the law. God's own righteousness in Jesus Christ is imputed and freely given to me through the cross. And God sees me in him. And we receive and enjoy this blessing by faith. That's the very clear teaching of scripture let me point to uh, the the passage where luther was struggling in romans chapter 3 romans chapter 3 verse 22 even the righteousness well start with verse 21 now the righteousness of god without the law is manifest being witnessed by the law and the prophets notice what he's saying there this righteousness does not come by my obedience to the law without the law separate from outside of obedience to the law even the righteousness, he says, of God, which is by faith of Jesus Christ. Unto all and upon all them that believe. And then a little later, God justifies those who believe. It's very important for us to see the, not only this, that the only means of justification is by faith. But also that when the Bible speaks of believing, by uh, of receiving justification by faith, it separates that from all works. That's the point here in Romans chapter 3, and it's also what Paul puts before us in Philippians chapter 3. Think of the way that Paul describes this, uh, talks about this here. He begins in verse 2 by saying, Beware of dogs and the concision. He's talking there about Judaizers who would come into the church and tell the New Testament Christians, you have to keep these Old Testament practices. This is the way of justification, not only by faith in Jesus Christ, but by faith in Jesus Christ and the doing of these practices. And Paul says, no, no. It's we who are believers who are the circumcision and worship God in the Spirit and rejoice in Jesus Christ and have no confidence in the flesh. We don't rest in what we do for our righteousness. And then he goes on to talk about himself. He says, I might have confidence in the flesh. There's all kinds of things, he says, I could boast about in the flesh, in what I've done. He says, I was circumcised the eighth day. I was the stock of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, Hebrew of the Hebrews, blameless with regard to obedience to the law, concerning zeal. I had zeal, persecuting the church. The righteousness which is in the law, blameless. And so does Paul say, I believe in Jesus Christ for my righteousness, but I have all these good things that I can hold on to before God as well? Now he says, I count all these things done, so that, he says, I might be found in Jesus Christ, not having my own righteousness, which is after the law, but the righteousness which is of God or from God by faith. We have to understand what faith is. The catechism's already talked about this, Lord's Day 7. It is first that we are engrafted into Jesus Christ. Yes, faith is active. But in the activity of faith, we constantly renounce our own works and we look away to Jesus Christ. Faith has been described as an eye, an eye that cannot see itself, but an eye that looks away to the object, to Jesus Christ. And that's my faith. That's the activity of faith, a renouncing of self and a looking to Jesus Christ. And the Apostle Paul emphasizes that in the passage here in Philippians chapter 3, that I might know him. And now think of all the different content of the Apostles' Creed. What is it that we rest in? Who is the object of our faith? Jesus Christ and what he has done. That I might know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his suffering being made conformable unto his death. If by any means I might attain to the resurrection of the dead. And you see what Paul is saying here. The activity of faith looks to Christ renounces myself, and rests in him alone. So how do I stand in the courtroom before this righteous God when my conscience is accusing me, when I know the guilt of my sins, when Satan's there as the accuser of the brethren? I stand looking to Christ. Then I know that I'm justified, then I know that my sins are forgiven. It may be today, sinners, that you think this, something like this, I can never be saved. My sin is so desperately bad. God is so righteous, God is so holy, I've heard that this morning. Maybe others, but not me. And here's what the truth of justification by faith alone in Christ alone says to you this morning. Look away. To Christ. Rest in him. Come to me. You who are laboring and heavy laden. And he says I will give you rest. Doesn't depend on you. God looks at me. As one who rests in Christ. As though I never had had nor committed any sin. My righteousness is not. On account of. Or influenced by. My own worthiness, my own doing, my own unworthiness, my own sin. But it's Christ. Look to Him and be saved, all the ends of the earth. And of course, When that righteousness, the perfect righteousness of Christ, is imputed to me, then all the accusers must be silenced before God. Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? Isn't that the great question in Romans chapter 8? Who is he that condemned? It's Christ that died, yea, rather that is risen. And so my conscience, my sins, the mountain of them that rise up against me must hear this. There's no condemnation to them who are in Christ Jesus. And the comfort of this is peace. And again, Romans 5, being justified by faith, we have peace with God. Through our Lord Jesus Christ. I begin by talking about the courtroom and the judge and the righteousness of the judge and the guilt of the condemned, that's you and me, and the declaration, not guilty. But this judge is more than that, isn't he? He's a judge who says, You're my child. I adopt you. That's part of our justification, that we are received as sons and daughters of God. And it's here in the Catechism I am an heir of eternal life. I become the rightful heir of God, who is judge of heaven and earth. So the judge reaches into the box of the condemned and takes the child into his arms and says not only do I receive you but I love you as my own child and nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus not life not death not angels not principalities not powers not things in the present not things to come not height not depth nor any other creature That's the comfort and the peace of this great truth. There are seasons of doubt in the life of the child of God and those seasons of doubt often come about because we've wandered in sin. And then the word of God is not this, penance, do everything you can to cancel out your sin by your good works, and your obedience. No, then the word of God is this. Look to Jesus. And looking to Jesus, you will renounce, turn away from your sin. But look to him. Believe on him. This is the prophet of believing. This is the pearl of great price. That I may be found in him not having my own righteousness, which is by the law, but the righteousness which is of God, by faith. Amen. Father, we're thankful for the provision in the gospel, the good news of our being received, accepted, in the beloved in Jesus Christ. And we're thankful that this pearl of great price is the answer to the accusing conscience, the answer to the reality that we have grossly transgressed the commandments, that we haven't kept them all, that we've kept none of them, even this that we are guilty yet before they had inclined to sin. Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifies. Who is he that condemns? It is Christ, who's taken our sin, who died, and who's risen for our justification. Give us, Lord, a, a faith in which we don't rest in ourselves, but look to and trust in the Savior alone. In his name we pray. Amen.